Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. How can a museum dedicated to the legacy of slavery make the country more just? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. The first thing you see when you walk into the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, are ocean waves crashing up against huge video screens in front of you. It's a haunting reference to the Middle Passage, where countless numbers of kidnapped Africans met their end before the slave ships arrived on foreign shores. It marks the first chapter of African-American history in this nation, and it sets the tone for the Legacy Museum's journey through the timeline of Black life in this country. The museum takes visitors on a journey that draws a continuous line from the days of chattel slavery all the way to the voter suppression and mass incarceration that we see today. Now, at the very end, you wind up in a giant room with couches in the middle and floor-to-ceiling pictures of black luminaries who have passed on. They're looking down on you as if from heaven. Everyone from Frederick Douglass to Shirley Chisholm to Dr. King to Gwen Ifill. It's a comforting place. But you're reminded, sitting there, that our journey as black people on this land is bookended is encapsulated by death. The Legacy Museum felt a little like this when its first, smaller incarnation debuted in 2018. That's when attorney Brian Stevenson and his Equal Justice Initiative opened it around the corner from their offices in Montgomery as a counterpart to their National Memorial to Peace and Justice, which features 805 blocks of metal etched with the names of lynching victims. Those six-foot-tall blocks still stand and hang atop a hill that overlooks the Alabama Capitol building. I wanted to talk with Stevenson about this new, expanded museum, how it complements his legal work on behalf of the wrongfully convicted, and ask him, When it comes to the fight for racial justice, what can a museum really do? Brian Stevenson, thanks for joining me on Vox Conversations. Happy to be with you. So first, Brian, I want to ask you, why a museum? In your view, why was there a need for the Legacy Museum in 2018 and now a much larger one in 2021? Well, I think generally in the United States, we've done a very poor job of creating cultural spaces that help us understand who we are and how we've gotten where we are. And 
I went to Johannesburg in South Africa, and I saw the Apartheid Museum there, and it was powerful to me to see that that nation had created an institution that helped people understand the pain and the suffering and the anguish that apartheid created. I've been to Berlin, and you can't go 200 meters in Berlin without seeing markers and monuments to honor the victims of the Holocaust. There's a Holocaust memorial in the center of the city. And because of that reckoning, there's a, just a different relationship to history in that country than you see in this country. There are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. It would be unconscionable for people to try to romanticize that period because there's been this reckoning. In the United States, we haven't done that. There are no museums that talk honestly in a detailed way about the legacy of slavery. We have the opposite. We actually create plantation tours and other spaces that romanticize that antebellum era. And so I do believe that we need to create spaces that more honestly address this history. And we began that process in 2018, and I was very encouraged by the level of interest that the uh, memorial generated in the first museum, but we felt like we needed to expand it because there was so much more to say. There's no place in America where you can have an honest exploration of the transatlantic slave trade. We haven't talked about the violence of slavery, the details around lynching, the anguish and resistance to civil rights, and certainly nothing that's getting to this contemporary moment of over-incarceration. And I do think that part of our problem is that we have been so silent in cultural spaces about the importance of historical examination and memorialization. We believe in memorialization in America. We have a 9-11 memorial less than a decade after that incident. So it's not that we don't recognize the power of these institutions. We just haven't created them when it comes to looking at the legacy of slavery and lynching and racial injustice. I remember back in 2018 when I was driving between Birmingham and Montgomery to cover the opening of the original Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice for Rolling Stone. And I noticed this giant Confederate flag <laughs> along I-65. You know what one I'm talking about. Absolutely. And, you know, it just reminded me of what you're talking about. As I put in the piece, we memorialize deliberately. I remember in Just Mercy, you mentioned the Atticus Finch Mockingbird Museum, yeah. you know, a museum dedicated to a fictional character who didn't save his black client. <laughs> you know? So it's just like this memorialization that we do in this country between plantations, Mockingbird Museums, this memorialization of white virtue without regard to black bodies is epidemic at this yeah. point. And it's a real problem. I think people haven't appreciated the barriers it creates to progress. And you're absolutely right. The American South is littered with iconography designed to memorialize and honor the architects and defenders of the Confederacy. When I moved to Montgomery in the 1980s, this was a city that had 59 markers and memorials to the Confederacy, and you could not find the word slave or slavery or enslavement anywhere in this city. And uh, I still live in a state where Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday, where Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. We don't have Martin Luther King Day in Alabama. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. That giant Confederate flag is still on Interstate 65. And I don't think until we address these things, we're going to get to the place we need to go, because these are more than just tokens. They are symbols of a false narrative of the virtue of, of racial hierarchy, of the acceptability of white supremacy. And I think artists and cultural 
leaders and institutions have in many ways been complicit by not creating an honest accounting of this history. And that's why I do think there's a lot of work to do in the cultural spaces of America. Indeed. And to give you credit, I think the museum, the new one, it does that very well. Having seen it, you know, you're greeted, of course, by this 30-foot wall yeah. with just waves. And if you're not thinking about why you're there, you might think, okay, that why is this giant wave of water at the beginning of a museum dedicated to the history of uh, prejudice and racism in this country? And I, you know, immediately got it, of course, because, you know, you're dedicating this opening moment to the people, the millions yeah. of Africans who were kidnapped, who did not make it ashore. And it takes you all the way from there, all the way through, of course, enslavement, through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and all the way up to modern day mass incarceration and voter suppression. One of the things I, I was struck by was, you know, something you mentioned earlier. The economics of slavery mm-hmm. are very strongly spotlighted right as soon as you get in there. And you realize, if you didn't already know, that this is a nation that's, whose economic wealth and, and power were built largely on the backs of people who were enslaved. Yeah. I, I just kind of want to get your input on sort of your thinking is how you design this timeline, this yeah. walk through the museum. Well, thank you, Jamil. I mean, it was intentional to begin with that devastating ocean journey, because I just don't think we've talked enough about what happened to millions of people uh, during this era. We put 12.7 million kidnapped people on ships and trafficked them across the Atlantic Ocean. We took them from their homes and their families and their lands, and two million died doing that horrific, and their bodies are at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and we haven't memorialized, we haven't acknowledged, we haven't reckoned with the tragedy of the Middle Passage, and we spend millions investigating the trinkets from the Titanic and looking for gold from pirate ships, but we haven't investigated the carnage and the suffering and the weight of two million people dying as a result of this criminality, this abduction and kidnapping. And I've been thinking a lot about the legacy because, you know, as an African-American, as a child of one of those stolen people, one of those abducted people, Mm -hmm. I've been completely disconnected from ancestors. Uh, You know, you can take a DNA test and you'll get like eight countries show up, you know? (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) You know? And that journey separated people, not just from family and home and land, but it separated them from ancestors and identity. And I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that. And we then talk about the carnage and the violence. And yes, the economics of of enslavement. When we had the original museum, it began with the domestic slave trade and it focused on Montgomery. And too many people from the North and Northeast were coming into that space thinking that you know, they weren't implicated, that their communities weren't part of this. And we wanted to change that because the transatlantic slave trade is the trade that created all of those coastal communities in New England. It was shipbuilding and trafficking, the importation of people that allowed those communities to be built. Boston, you know, we talk about the Boston Tea Party. Everybody learns about that in history, uh, but we don't 
teach young people that that same harbor is where thousands of enslaved black people were trafficked through that portal. And we talk about freedom and equality, and we don't apply those concepts to these enslaved and trapped people. And Boston was a city whose commercial infrastructure was built on the slave trade. Uh, New York City is a similar coastal community that found its wealth through the human trafficking. Uh, it was enslaved people that built Wall Street. It was enslaved people that built Broadway. It was enslaved people that built uh, and created the infrastructure for Manhattan. And you can go all along the East Coast from Philadelphia to Baltimore to Richmond down to Charleston to see this legacy. And there are coastal communities in New Jersey and New England that don't even know about their relationship to the slave trade. And when the transatlantic slave trade ended, insurance companies in Hartford, in Connecticut, in New England, in New York City, and banks began financing uh, the trade in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And the whole financial enterprise that made the United States a world player was very much connected to cotton and the legacy uh, of human trafficking. And so I do think it's important for people to understand that and to begin thinking about what that means, about the great wealth that this nation enjoys and its relationship to this horrible era of enslavement. In that spirit, I also want to ask, for those who don't exactly know what Equal Justice Initiative is about, how does this work with the museum and the memorial connect to the work you're doing every day? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, you know, I'm very upfront about the fact that I'm a product of Brown versus Board of Education. I grew up in a community where black children couldn't go to the public schools. I started my education in a colored school. There were no high schools for black kids. When my dad was a teenager, he couldn't go to high school in our county. And I was surrounded by lots of hardworking people who were committed to family and, and making the lives of their children better, but they were denied high school education, and that limited their capacity to, to create the kind of wealth and income. And uh, most of us didn't inherit wealth, we inherited debt. And yet these lawyers were able to come into our community and make them open up the public schools. And that's what got me interested in law, because these lawyers, the county was 80-some percent white, if you had a vote on whether to integrate the public schools, we would have lost the vote. People were not willing to use the democratic political process to create opportunities for kids like me. But because there are these rights, these lawyers were able to enforce our right to an education. And that's how I got to go to high school. That's how I got to go to college. I wanted to go to law school because I wanted to use that same power to help other disfavored people, other marginalized people. And when I was coming out of law school in the 80s, we were in the midst of this intense investment in incarceration. The prison population went from about 300,000 in the early 1970s to 2.3 million today. And lots of people were being condemned. Lots of people were being thrown away. And I wanted to respond to that. And so I started working on behalf of condemned prisoners in the 80s and have continued that work till today. And we've expanded our work. So we represent condemned prisons. We represent people wrongly convicted, wrongly sentenced, unfairly sentenced, the mentally ill, the poor, those who are dealing with trauma. We challenge conditions of confinement. We represent children prosecuted as adults. And that's still a big part of the work of EJI. But about 15 years ago, Jamil, I actually realized something that terrified me. And what I realized mm -hmm. is that I don't think we could win Brown versus Board of Education today. I don't think our court today would do something that disruptive on behalf of a disfavored group. 
And that pained me because it made me fear that the next generation of little Brian Stevensons were not going to be allowed to do the things that I was allowed to do because those lawyers intervened. And I realized that even that era of Brown would not have been possible without narrative work or without advocates pushing on the streets, without people uh, articulating basic concepts that were necessary. And so it caused me to get outside the court and start doing this narrative work. And I just believe that until we reckon with this long history, until we change the narrative about American history and American identity, until we acknowledge uh, these things about our past, our courts won't be able to deliver the kind of justice that my clients are looking for today. They're going to be indifferent mm -hmm. to evidence of racial bias. Mm -hmm. They're going to not worry about uh, overt bigotry in some of these cases. I've got cases where defendants are being referred to with the N-word, where jurors are admitting uh, that they don't think black people are fully human. We've got people on death row with death sentences where those kinds of jurors sat on juries that made these judgments and our courts are not responding. They're allowing people to be executed despite that evidence. We've got counties uh, that are majority black where no person of color has served on a capital trial jury and the courts aren't intervening. And I think the reason why they're failing to intervene is that they have not reckoned with the damage that this history of enslavement and lynching and segregation has created. Because I think the real problem that slavery created in America was a narrative problem. You know, the enslavers mm -hmm. didn't want to feel immoral and unjust and unchristian, so they created this narrative that black people aren't as good as white people, that black people are less capable, less worthy, less deserving. Their humanity is not the same, and therefore it's okay to enslave them. It's uh, okay to subject them to mob violence. It's okay to exclude them in the law. It's okay to incarcerate mm -hmm. them, to condemn them, to terrorize them. And that failure to recognize the full humanity of black people continues to undermine all of these systems. And for me, it's all connected. And to succeed in one place, we're going to have to make progress in the other. Certainly the relevance of what you're doing can be seen in what the right is doing right now, you know, with regards to this, you know, hullabaloo, what they say is about critical race theory, which yeah. I would put is really just trying to criminalize anti-racism and in the teaching yeah. of the actual narrative of American history. Is it really a matter just of like, you know, there are some people who cannot handle when America is the bad guy or, or is it something deeper than that? Yeah, I think it's basic human nature, particularly when you're disempowered and you're trying to change things from a position where you're not kind of totally empowered. And I think that's the challenge that we face in America that's distinct uh, from South Africa. And South Africa after the collapse of apartheid, it became a black majority society where black people were in control of some of that political process. And they were able to insist on a truth and reconciliation process. Uh, after the Rwandan genocide, the Tutsi who had been the targets of so much of that violence, uh, there was a military intervention and they regained power. And so you have a genocide museum there, you have narrative work happening there. The Germans lost the war. And because the Germans lost the war, you see the kind of attention to the Holocaust that you wouldn't see had the Germans prevailed. And the challenge we face in America is that there hasn't been a reckoning that has been compelled. Uh, you know, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the Narrative War. That idea of racial hierarchy persisted. Even after the war, you had abolitionists that didn't believe in slavery, but did believe that black people were not the equal of white people. And all during that first half of the 20th century, there was no 
obligation, there was no accountability for those mobs that lynched people, pulled black people out of their homes and, and tortured them and burned them. There was no accountability. All those states that created those laws that mandated segregation, that uh, prohibited interracial romance, there was no accountability in the 1960s. We didn't say, oh, you now have to do something uh, to repair the damage created by this century of disenfranchisement. We just let them continue on. And that absence of accountability has made us think that when we make progress in some of these areas, that we can kind of push back against that progress. And it's just American history. You know, when the abolitionists began arguing against slavery, and slavers began arguing all of these absurd ideas about how no black people like being enslaved. That's, this is their natural condition. They're not fully human. During the era of lynching, when people were arguing against that violence, there were those who were saying, no, it has to be done this way. During the civil rights era, we were told, oh, oh no, the black people, they don't want a, a education. They don't want the opportunities that others have. It's better this way. Black people are not this. And so that we're now seeing a counter narrative to the activism, to the insistence that we recognize that Black lives matter, that there's human worth in all communities is kind of the norm. What I find interesting is that we're so tolerant of it. You know, we have the exhibit that you saw on voting, and I think this is a perfect example. We talk about the, the lengths that these states would go to disenfranchise Black people. And we have a little exhibit where people can go into a room and take a poll test and we get the actual questions from tests that were given. And when you read these tests, you realize how insane and intense the commitment to blocking Black people from voting. These weren't literacy tests. Black people were literate and capable of passing the test. These were asking people questions that were unanswerable. And you look at some of these questions on these poll tests, like how many bubbles in a bar of soap? How many windows in the White House? How many seeds in a watermelon? And you begin to realize that this is a game to try to minimize Black political participation. And I think that's the history that we need to be mindful of when we listen to these debates about new voting restrictions in states across the country, new voting restrictions in, in Georgia, this effort to kind of create new barriers. And I think it's the absence of accountability historically that has made people believe like it's appropriate to say, oh, we're going to create a law that says you can't teach things about American history that reflect racism and bigotry. We're just going to ban that. Not going to ban all of the absurd things that we've been taught that you and I had to navigate. We're going to ban that. And I <laughs> right. think that's the challenge that we now face is that that history of no accountability, that history of no truth telling has made some people believe that they can just embrace these false narratives, take it to the Capitol, storm the Congress, demand that the outcome that they want be the outcome that gets achieved. And that's the threat to democracy. And I think racism has always been a threat to democracy that we haven't fully addressed. And it's why this work for me is so urgent. This new museum stands in righteous opposition to those perpetuating the legacy of black enslavement. This is what Brian Stevenson's work has always stood for, especially his career advocating for people on death row. After the break, I'll ask him about that difficult work and whether the politics of recent years have made it even more difficult. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. 
If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Did your work on behalf of the wrongfully convicted change at all during the Trump years? Yeah, well, I think one of the challenges that has emerged and will continue to be with us is that there has to be a space where people are obligated to protect basic rights. And the courts have historically occupied that space. And in the last decade, and certainly in the last four or five years, we've seen the courts become places that are overrun with people who are ideological, who are partisan, who have an agenda, uh, who are not thinking about precedent or not thinking about the rule of law. They're thinking about how to restore a kind of order that is consistent with a lot of the problems that we've seen. We had judges nominated during the Trump years who would not express support for Brown versus Board of Education, for the basic concept that the federal government has a right, a role to play and protecting equal opportunities for people who deny those opportunities because of race. And that just signaled something really worrisome. And we saw the manifestation of that in the last weeks of the Trump presidency, when 11 federal people on the American death row, federal death row, were executed. And, you know, these were people who were executed with very substantial questions about the reliability of their convictions, the fairness of their sentences. And because they were worried about whether they'd have enough of the drugs needed to carry out these lethal injections. You even had the attorney general investigating and creating uh, new methods that they could sanction, including the use of nitrogen cyanide and the chemicals that the Nazis used during the Holocaust. And when the United States government begins to investigate ways to use this method of killing people and to adopt that, it says something really scary. And you were saying earlier about this kind of fear we have to truth-telling, to acknowledging mistakes. And I do think that's why it's important that other institutions become vocal. I, I, I want the faith community in this country to become more present in a lot of these conversations. You know, I believe that we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. I think if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. If someone takes something, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. And that's ingrained in a lot of the theology that informs not just Christianity, but Judaism and Islam and the Buddhism traditions. And yet faith communities have been largely silent, as we've seen a lot of this stuff. And I just think we need people to model this willingness to embrace truth. You know, in my church, and I know you know about this, you can't come to my church and say, I want salvation and redemption and heaven and all that good stuff, but I'm not going to admit to anything. Right. You know, the, the preachers <laughs> are going to say it doesn't work like that. They're going to say, you've got to confess and repent, and you shouldn't fear it. You should embrace it, because right. it opens up not just your head, but your heart 
to the things that allow redemption to take place. And in this country, fear has kept us from the kind of restoration, reconciliation, uh, redemption, reparation, all of those beautiful R words. And that's why I think we have to start modeling this kind of truth-telling and let people know, look, the world will not end if we talk honestly about slavery. You can come to our museum, you can go to our memorial, and you will be able to exit and you will not die. You'll feel some things that you haven't felt before, maybe. You'll see some things you haven't seen before. You'll know some things that will challenge you, but that knowledge will also motivate you to maybe begin understanding things you need to understand to get to a just society. Right. And to me, what's so fascinating about the people who deny truth and reconciliation is that that process of accountability actually, to me, is patriotic. Yeah. To me, it's it's about trying to make the country better. I mean, people fail to realize that, you know, here in the United States, those states that permit executions experience higher rates of homicide than yeah. those who don't. Yeah. And so are we trying to actually improve the country when we execute prisoners or are we actually just rooting our politics in revenge as a very wise friend put it to me recently. I, I just feel like in the, their effort to protect America's image, they're actually downgrading the potential of the country. Absolutely. I mean, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, and we want to be the champion of liberty and equality. And those things are in conflict with one another. And I do think a lot of it is is about what I call the politics of fear and anger. Uh, I mean, we've been governed by too many people for too long who want to govern by fear and anger. And you saw that happen after the civil rights era with this misguided war on drugs. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon and others began talking about people who are dealing with drug addiction and drug dependency. They said they were criminals and they criminalized that status of addiction and dependency. Now, we could have said that people suffering from addiction and dependency have a health problem and we need a healthcare response. But instead, we criminalized and then people started competing with each other. Both political parties were competing over who could be the toughest to deal with these criminals. And we had a generation of policymakers act as if they could put crimes in jails and prison. Oh, so that crime, we're going to send that crime away for 30 years. That crime will be 50 years. Child pornography, a thousand years. We're going to put these crimes in prison. And the truth, of course, is that you can't put a crime in prison. You can only put a person in prison. And most of us recognize that people are not crimes. Uh, There's no faith tradition in the world that would make the argument that people are just crimes. And when we begin to realize how even someone who commits a crime is more than that crime, you have to start to think differently about the propriety of these sentences. But the politics of fear and anger have fueled so many of these policies. We saw it happen to children in the 80s that began saying that some children aren't really children. These kids look like kids and sound like kids, but don't be deceived. They're not kids. And they came up with this term. They said, these aren't children. These are, quote, super predators. And that mythology about children that was mostly directed at black and brown kids is what led to hundreds of thousands of children being prosecuted as adults. And I've had to sit with children uh, 13 and 14 years old who have been placed in adult jails where they've been abused and raped and assaulted and understand how this country could tolerate that kind of abuse. And that's why, for me, the work has always been about challenging those kinds of narratives. I believe that all children are children. I think if you care about children in this country, you can't show that commitment 
by looking at how well we treat talented kids and gifted kids and privileged kids, our commitment to children has to be expressed by how we treat poor kids, abused kids, neglected kids. When you speak about children in that way, I always think about Tamir Rice. Yeah. I'm from Cleveland and, you know, I was there at that site about a couple of weeks after it happened. The, the, the tracks from Timothy Lohman's police car were still frozen in the mud. And, you know, there was a little memorial there for him, of course. And just thinking as we think about memorials, it's just like, are we content in this country to simply memorialize and therefore potentially lionize those fallen heroes of our past without actually making changes? Yeah. That's the only thing I worry about with museums sometimes. You know, granted, it's good that it's accessible, but I worry sometimes that, you know, in constructing that narrative, we apply a heroism to people that overtakes their humanity. Yeah. Well, I think that's why, for me at least, the role of the cultural institution is to do the truth-telling, but then push people to do the reconciliation, the reckoning, the work. Since 2018, we've been in communities, dozens of communities around the country, helping community members understand their local relationship to that history. And the same is true for the work we're now wanting to do. I mean, we you go from enslavement to lynching to segregation to this present moment of, of over-incarceration and police violence. And what we're trying to say to people is that if you think you were going to be an abolitionist if you were during, alive during the time of slavery. If you think you would have been one of the people trying to stop mob violence during the first half of the 20th century, if you think you were marching, you would have marched with Dr. King and John Lewis during that time period. And you're not doing anything now to respond to this epidemic of incarceration and the bigotry that we're seeing in policing, the murders of children like Tamir Rice. If you're not responding to that, you can't claim to have been on the right side in these earlier eras. And, And that's why for us, you know, the museum is kind of a call to action that we begin to do these things, push back against this false notion that we just have to protect these histories that are incomplete and dishonest. And I I agree with you that we're not actually going to make progress if we don't reckon with the fact that Tamir Rice, like so many children of color in this country, you know, are burdened with a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. And that's, you know, there was a moment in my life where I thought, you know, if I was uh, successful enough, I could actually free myself from these burdens. And I did really well in high school. I finished at the top of my class. I did really well in college. I went to Harvard Law School. Mm -hmm. You know, I've won a bunch of cases at the Supreme Court. I've got all of these degrees and all of that stuff. And yet, I still have to navigate these presumptions. I did a case in the Midwest just a few years ago after I'd won this case at the Supreme Court. was going around the country representing children who were now eligible for relief. And I remember being in this courtroom in the Midwest and getting there early, had my suit and tie on, you know, I had Mm -hmm. my blue suit and the white shirt, you know, and I always there early because I didn't want to make the right impression. And the judge walked in and he saw me sitting there and he got angry. He said, hey, 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 you get back out there in that hallway. You wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. Oh, boy. And I had to stand up and apologize. I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I didn't introduce myself. My name is Brian Stevenson. I am the lawyer. And the judge started laughing and the prosecutor started laughing. And I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client who was more vulnerable than I was. Right. And the client came in and we did the hearing. But afterward, I was sitting there in my car thinking, wow, here I am, this middle-aged black man in this suit and tie with these degrees. 
And I'm still required to laugh at my own humiliation to do justice for my clients. And that's why we cannot uh, succeed our way away from this legacy. We cannot mm-hmm. achieve our way away from it. We're going to have to do something about this legacy. And that's why, for me, the museum and the memorial are portals through which we come out with a new understanding, a new consciousness, a new readiness to engage uh, with issues that have been denied and ignored for far too long. Right. And I, I can certainly relate to, you know, being told that you're part of this talented 10th. Yeah. Uh, and there are legions of people trying to make you feel special for that. And, you know, a lot of kids need that to a certain degree. But the problem is, is that it also conveys a sense that we've made it. We've yeah. made the progress. We've elected a black president. We have a black vice president. Oh, why are you complaining? And, you know, and, and, and what I think, I think the museum accomplishes uh, very well is it traces the line you know, all the way from chattel slavery to modern day mass incarceration when you're sitting there and you can pick up a phone and hear Anthony Ray Hinton tell his story and, and of course, dozens of others. Is there a point in your life where that clicked for you, that understanding of the connectedness of the, you know, the intersectionality also of of oppression, all of that clicked for you? You know, there have been several moments. I think, you know, I really believed I was well-equipped to do the work of justice. Uh, You know, I graduated from Harvard Law School. I had gotten a joint degree in public policy. I felt like I was really prepared. And I remember working on behalf of death row prisoners uh, when I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, I'd gotten involved in a case involving police misconduct out of Alabama where a young kid who had just gotten his driver's license, had been stopped by the police. He kept the driver's license in a bag in the floor of the driver's side of the car. That's when the police officer asked for his license. He was trying to be responsive, so he quickly bent down to get the license, and the police officer pulled his gun and shot this child and killed him. And they planted a weapon in his car. They made this argument that he was threatening the police officer. Now, this kid was very, very well-respected. He was very uh, religious and active in the church. And the community was just saying, that's just not true. That's just not possible. So I was working on that case. Mm. And I was at my office late one night trying to get ready. I was going to Alabama the next day. And I came home. And I'm probably going to date myself a little bit, age myself a little bit. But uh, (laughs) this was in the 80s. I was driving home. I had this little beat-up car had an am radio that didn't work half the time but every now and then if you hit a pothole big enough the radio would start playing (laughs) (laughs) and i was driving to my apartment in midtown atlanta and i and the radio was playing and they started doing this retrospective of sly and the family stone and a lot of your listeners may not remember sly but back in my day sly was the man I do. Yes. Okay. I mean, you know, <laughs> dance to the music, hot fun in the summertime. Everybody is a star. And they were just playing all of these Sly songs. And I remember just getting to the apartment and sitting there and just kind of taking it all in. I was like, I'm going to keep listening to Sly. And I was sitting in front of my apartment in Atlanta when uh, a SWAT police car drove up, stopped in front of me. This guy got out all black. They didn't even wear the regular police uniforms. Mm-hmm. shined a light on me. And I thought, man, this guy doesn't realize that this is where I live. So let me just get out and explain to him that this is my apartment. I opened the door. I stood out. And as soon as I stood up, police officer pulled his gun 
and said, move and I'll blow your brains out. And I had to put my hands up and I said, it's all right, it's okay. And the guy was shaking. He was pointing a gun at me and he was <laughs> shaking. I said, no, it's okay, it's all right, it's okay. And the other officer came behind me and threw me on the car and they kept me out there for 20 minutes and neighbors came out and it was so humiliating. And of course they never found anything. They did a completely illegal search of the car. And I said, why did you do this? This is where I live. And they just said something like, you should just be lucky that we didn't find it this time, but we'll get you next time. And they were still threatening me, even as they left. Mm. And that's when I realized that my degree and my training and my education were not going to shield me from these presumptions. And it overwhelmed me. I'll be honest. The next day I woke up and I was worried about the black kids in my neighborhood. Do they know how to navigate these kinds of encounters? Because if the same thing had happened right. to me when I was 16 and just started driving, I'm fearful that yeah. when they pulled that gun late at night like that, I might have turned around and run. And it bothered me that it took some kind of experience with the law and all this other stuff to know to say it's all right, it's okay, to take the role of trying to calm the situation, to de-escalate the situation. And I was grabbing young kids in the neighborhood, telling them what to do if they get stopped and telling them how not to react. And that's the weight that so many of us carry as we move through life. And, you know, you have children and, and relatives and you have to worry about preparing them to deal with this legacy, this history, this burden. And it's not right. It's clear when you walk through the Legacy Museum that there is a devastating continuity between the story Brian just told and the experiences of countless other Black men and women who have been enslaved, dehumanized, and attacked. The images of slavery and segregation exhibited alongside recent photos of people murdered by police send an unmistakable message. This history is alive. It's our present reality. When we come back from one more short break, I'll ask Brian Stevenson about one particularly shocking image you might have seen very recently. I feel like there's something you can add to the end of that journey in the museum before you get to that wonderful reflecting room, uh, before you get to even the art gallery that precedes it. Unfortunately, you know, you may have to add these picture of Haitian refugees yeah. being whipped with the horse reins of border control officers. I simply, you know, had to get your thoughts about that. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that our poor grasp of this history makes us comfortable with patterns of behavior and conduct that we would never be comfortable with. You know, when I went to Germany and gave lectures about the death penalty, it was fascinating to me that the German lawyers and jurists and scholars would stand up and say, well, of course, we can never have the death penalty in Germany. It would be unconscionable for us to be creating gas chambers where people could be executed given our history with the Holocaust. And I thought about that on the flight back to America. What would we say if they started building gas chambers in Germany? And what would we say 
if they started condemning people to death, then they were disproportionately Jewish. I could not make peace with that world. But we do that in this country, and our failure to reckon with history means that you can have border agents on horseback tracking down black people who are fleeing for their lives or just seeking security and not be mindful of how that conflicts with any concept of justice or fairness. And so I do think we're in a political moment where we have to kind of compel people to make a choice. You cannot continue to claim that you're against racism, that you're against bigotry when you allow immigration policies to be so shaped uh, by color preference, by racial preference. You cannot claim to be against racism uh, when you do not understand the history of voter suppression and disenfranchisement and allow states to, to create new barriers when it comes to access to the polls. You cannot claim to be against racism and not be proactive in dealing with the disparities that this pandemic has revealed over the last year and a half when it comes to the impact of COVID. Uh, and that's part of why I think, you know, repair is such a critical concept in this moment. You know, it, it, when you go to law school, uh, what's interesting, the law school curriculum is overwhelmingly about remedies. You know, it's you, you take contracts in your first year, you take torts, you take property. But it doesn't take you long to understand what a contract is. It doesn't take you long to understand what a tort is or what property is. You spend most of your time trying to figure out what is the remedy when somebody breaches a contract? What is the remedy when a tort is committed? What is the remedy when property is taken unfairly? So the whole law school curriculum is about remedies, corporations and taxes, about remedying violations. And it's interesting to me that when it comes to wealth, when it comes to property, when it comes to contracts, when it comes to commerce, when it comes to business, when it comes to international relations, if a right is violated, we are interested in how to remedy the violation of that right. But when it came to civil rights, mm -hmm. we didn't have a conversation about remedies. We said, oh, Alabama, you've disenfranchised black people for 100 years. We're going to make you stop doing that with the Voting Rights Act. Oh, you kept black people out of schools and hospitals and institutions that were critical. We're going to make you stop doing that with the Civil Rights Act. But we never said, what are you going to do to remedy that century of disenfranchisement? And that failure to think about remedies is what's created this moment that we are in. Right. Because had we created a commitment to remedies, we wouldn't be having these debates we're having about voting. We wouldn't see the immigration policy manifesting itself the way it is now. We wouldn't have to look at those horrific pictures of border agents on horseback chasing black people. I mean, you know, I didn't want to create a museum and a memorial that was just a reaction to something. I, I feel like it's essential to have spaces where we engage in truth-telling if we're going to then be able to do the kind of uh, work around anti-racism training that you're describing. And you're absolutely right that it's just not enough to avoid using the N-word. It's not enough uh, to, you know, like a black athlete. Uh, it's not <laughs> enough to be a fan of the NBA or the NFL. Or, or to post a black square position. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not enough to like rap music. We have to engage in meaningful uh, work to remedy this long history of racial hierarchy and, and racist thinking that kind of shapes so many of the things that happen in this country, from border policy to content and cultural spaces. We have a whole Truth and Justice Project. We're even talking to media about this because a lot of, you know, what happened in our country and continues to happen 
has been supported and actually facilitated by yeah. media institutions. Yes. You know, the quote we have in our poll test room is a quote from the Tuscaloosa News, which wrote, this paper is committed to white supremacy and nothing more effectively preserves white supremacy than the poll test. And it doesn't matter that that was written in the 1930s and 40s. If you haven't written something to repudiate that, you are implicated by that content. And these institutions are still facilitating many of these false narratives. One of the most successful things about the museum is how it manages to present the narrative in physical objects. Yeah. There are the jelly beans sitting in front of you when you (laughs) get to take that poll test. So it's not simply like I'm reading a bunch of words and no, the jelly beans are sitting right there in front of you, daring you to guess how many are in there. There are the jars of dirt from the sites of lynchings. And of course, there's the memorial itself, not that far away, in which I'm, I'm so glad that you all did these giant, metal pillars with yeah. the names carved into the metal as opposed to say you know make there could be easy be like a memorial wall or a plaque yeah, yeah, you yeah, know and yeah. it's easy to run by on your daily run or pass on your way to the grocery store and not really take notice of it this demands that you not only take notice of the names but like understand the actual physical horror of lynching yeah. Yeah, that was really important to us. Uh, I mean, you know, the memorial is designed so that when you first enter that first quarter, those six foot steel monuments are at eye level and you get to see the names and they represent people. And you realize that this is a kind of human form that you're engaged with. And as you go deeper into the memorial and the monuments begin to rise and they are lifted over you, you have to think about the fact that, you know, that lynching violence, those bodies could have been buried and kept out of sight. But the people who were engaged in mob violence wanted to taunt and terrorize and intimidate other Black people, which is why we call it terrorism, because that was its intent, was to terrify people into supporting and and submitting to a racial hierarchy, to not registering to vote for fear that this violence would affect you. And we do think that the kind of memorialization that our country needs is the kind that stops you, the kind that makes you have to think and reflect. And people come to the memorial and some of them are in tears when they try to wrap their head around the violence and the despair. In our museum, we have a whole new exhibit on the lynching of children. And a lot of people say, oh man, that's too much. But I said, no, people need to understand what this violence did to families and communities. And you talk about mobs, lynching 14 and 13-year-old children, five-year-old kids being lynched. I I do think making it tangible for people is important. We have an exhibit in in the third era of those signs, the signs of segregation. And, you know, I don't think people appreciate what it was like for many of our parents and elders to grow up in places where all they saw were these judgments being made about Black people white only, color to the back. And they weren't directions, they were assaults. They created real injuries and we haven't addressed those injuries. We just told black people to just get on with it. Don't worry about the injury that we created. You you don't even get to talk about that. There's one particular part that I want to have you describe a little bit more in detail for listeners. And that is the phone booth exhibit at the end of your journey through this museum. I know that that was part of the original museum as well. And also there's the 
sort of apparitional images of enslaved people telling yeah. their stories from, yeah. from captivity. Tell me why that visual element of the museum was so necessary for you. Yeah. Well, we wanted our museum to be a first person narrative. We wanted people to actually hear from the folks directly impacted. And in researching, you know, slave narratives, there was so much rich content in the narratives that enslaved people were creating about the experience of being enslaved. And too often, you know, you have some expert or some third person talking about these things and you miss the humanity or the inhumanity of what it was like to go through this. And so one of the first exhibits is uh, from the pens where we use the text of these uh, narratives by enslaved people and create these holograms where you see the ghost give voice to what it's like to be separated from your children, to be told that you never see your sibling again. We even have one where you have children looking for their parents because we, 50% of all enslaved people sold during the domestic slave trade were separated from family members. And we just think this first person narratives gives you insight that you won't get otherwise. We have the quotes and when an enslaved woman talks about the difference between beating and separation, she says, I've been beaten many times, but my back has always healed. They took my husband away and my heart hasn't been right since. That's a perspective on the weight of that. You know, we have Mm -hmm. the ads that formerly enslaved people placed. Formerly enslaved people would spend their last nickels and dimes to place ads after emancipation, trying to find their children, trying to find their loved ones. I mean, people uh, mock and criticize the African-American community for some lack of commitment to family. We represent the strength of family. We have shown more commitment to family than, than most communities could even imagine, but we've been ripped apart by these forces. And I read those ads and they move me because they represent this deep desire to be connected. And we want that first person account. And so we have the descendants and the victims of lynchings giving their words. And in era three, hearing from people like Fannie Lou Hamer and C.T. Vivian and Ruby Sales and all of these others is really important to us. And that's true today. And that's why those booths at the end, uh, we want people to sit down and go through the experience of being in a prison space where you pick up a phone, you're not even allowed contact with your loved one. And to hear directly from incarcerated people, condemned people, and Anthony Ray Hinton and Diane Jones and Contrell Jackson and Ian Manuel and all of these folks I've been privileged to represent because it's their first person account that will have the biggest impact on your understanding of the world that we've created as a result of our failure to deal honestly with this legacy. Right. And actually the thing that's most hopeful about the entire experience is the recognition as you journey through this museum that this nation, of course, was built largely on the backs of enslaved people and then tracking all the way throughout history. And still yet there is a belief that comes through that, you know what, this is a country that can be fixed and we still, we're here. We're not going to leave. I was talking with a friend, Valerie Kaur, on my previous podcast, and she's Sikh. uh, She's uh, an activist and filmmaker and an author. And what I, you know, asked her was simply like, you know, after 9-11, you know, when you see your close family friend murdered and Mm. you see you know, people with turbans and who look like you, you know, targeted, but this hateful violence. 
how do you not give up on America? Mm. And I mean, the same question could be asked of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was why we created the, the reflection space where we just honor hundreds of people who've given their lives to make this country uh, the kind of country that we can all embrace and feel proud about. I, I mean, you know, because Black people, yes, initially enslaved, created this country, created the infrastructures, contributed so much. You know, I think about the formerly enslaved. They had every right to want retaliation and revenge against those who enslaved them. Mm -hmm. But instead, they chose to invest in a healthier America where they could be neighbors and community members with the same people who had abused and mistreated them. And that was a commitment to America. During the first half of the 20th century, when Black people were being lynched and terrorized, they fled the Deep South, but they went to other parts in this country where they still weren't welcome. They were a little more secure, but that was about their belief in America. Dr. King and the civil rights leaders and Rosa Parks, they would protest with American flags in their hand because they had this belief in America. They weren't just protesting segregation for their own personal convenience. They were trying to push this country to recognize that greatness requires equality and justice for all. And even today, you know, I, I fight for the people who are wrongly convicted and condemned. I, I, I don't think anyone uh, should be comfortable if there are innocent people in our jails and prisons, if we're not treating people fairly and justly, if we're putting children in situations where they're going to abuse. We cannot claim pride in our system. And I want us to get to a place where we can be proud of what we do, but that means we're going to have to push. And so, yes, I'm not going to give away my American identity. I fought too hard. My great-grandparents were enslaved. They fought too hard. My grandparents fought too hard. It is my uh, legacy as well, like everybody else's. And that's why we won't accept a second-class citizenship. We won't accept uh, being marginalized and targeted and menaced forever. We are going to insist that this country be a great country, truly great, free from bigotry and injustice. And what I feel proud of is that so many have done so much this pandemic has been fascinating for me. I've been in Montgomery every day, you know, waking up in my mm -hmm. own bed, which has been nice, not traveling. And it's caused <laughs> me to think about the people who were here before me. Mm -hmm. And I realize that I stand on the shoulders of people who did so much more with so much less. Uh, the people who came before me in Montgomery would put on their Sunday best. They'd go places to protest and march. And, and they knew they would get battered and bloodied and beaten, but they still went. And when I think about their courage, their activism, their commitment, I feel like I have to keep doing what I do. We have to keep doing what we have been allowed to do in this moment. Huh, I could talk about this all day with you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I want to value your time. Um, Brian Stevenson, Executive Director of Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, appreciate you joining me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Jamil. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And... If you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, 
and everyone who you think might benefit from it. And please be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're off on Monday in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, but please be sure to tune in next Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.